Jeremiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, Jeremiah says, Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, O oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. And they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness. And all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. But thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end, for this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken, I have purposed and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken and not a man shall dwell in it. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint in vain, you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hands saying, woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of murderers. In Jeremiah chapter four and verse five. Jeremiah was told to sound the alarm in verse nine to warn the leaders in verse 10 to expose the false prophets who cry peace in verses 11 through 13. He talks about fire and swift judgment. And in verses 14 through 18, he talks about paying attention to God's warning. And in verses 19 through 21, the day of anguish and the sorrow for Jeremiah. And then verse 22, judgment for foolish behavior. In verses 23 through 27, cosmic catastrophe. And then in verse 28 and 29 and 30 and 31, it is the day of inescapable judgment. So he begins with the day of sorrow and anguish for Jeremiah in verse 19. Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Part of what is it, it, taking place in verse 19 is Jeremiah reveals the fact that he is unhappy with the message. 
He's upset. He is disturbed. When he attempts to remain silent, the message burns inside of him like a fire in his soul. And what message is that? It's the message of judgment that's described in verses 5 through 18. Remember what we've already learned. An army is going to come from the north like a fierce lion in verse 7. Like a desert storm in verses 11, 12, and 13. There's a dreadful, a dreadful judgment that's coming upon the people of Judea and Jerusalem. And they're not prepared. Why aren't they prepared? Because the people believe the deceptive message of peace and prosperity and Jewish exceptionalism. And by Jewish exceptionalism, I mean we have the temple. We have the law of Moses. It is impossible. Nothing bad could really happen to us. But they've rebelled against God and they've embraced idolatry. They've turned their back on the things of God and the message of God and the prophecies and the promises of God. And they think that they're fine. Because the people believed the deceptive message of peace and prosperity, God told Jeremiah to blow the trumpet. That means sound the alarm, to run into the fortified cities for safety. There they could repent in sackcloth in verse 8. They could wash their hearts by confessing their sins in verse 14. Even though the judgment is coming, what Jeremiah is basically saying, there's still time. There's still time. The judgment hasn't come. It's not too late for you To confess that you've rebelled against God, that you've disobeyed God, that you can turn from your sin and you can turn to the source of salvation. The message of judgment is never, ever easy to hear. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's something even more difficult, and that's giving the message. You see, it's one thing for you to have to hear a message of judgment, and it's another thing for the person to have to deliver The message of judgment, especially if the message is, if you continue going down the road you're going, if you continue to embrace darkness instead of light, if you continue to embrace lies instead of the truth, if you continue to try to satisfy yourself instead of honoring and obeying God, it's going to be difficult for you. I'm going to suggest to you that part of Jeremiah's anguish rests in the fact that the judgment doesn't have to take place. Part of his anguish is it doesn't have to turn out bad. It doesn't have to turn out bad for you. By the way, it will turn out bad. But there is that sense of the application When we talk about the reality of what's going on in the life of every single human being, when we as human beings just talk about heaven and hell and we talk about eternity and the reality that things don't have to be bad, nobody has to go to hell. Nobody has to spend an eternity apart from God. Nobody has to face inevitable judgment if they'll just simply turn from their sin and turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord's going to explain to his servant Jeremiah why the judgment must come. The people are foolish. The people are stupid. They lack understanding in verse 22. 
And by the way, in verse 19, where it says, I am pained in my very heart, in, in the original language, it's bowels. It's your intestines. The ancient people believed that, uh, that the seed of emotion was in your stomach. Have you ever been really upset and, and you felt like your stomach was twisted inside out? Or have you ever been under a great deal of stress and all of a sudden you hear your colon start to growl? Here, that's what he's talking about. I am pained in my very heart is literally in the original language. Oh, the walls of my heart. The same word is used for city walls and fortifications. In other words, what he's basically saying is that the walls of my emotional defenses are beginning to break down and tear down. In other words, what little, little respect and self-sufficiency and emotional wherewithal that I have is beginning to unfold. I'm at that age now where I'm required to have a colonoscopy. I remember when I went in not too long ago and the doctor said, is there anything you need to know before we put you under? And I said, you're not going to post this on YouTube, are you? I mean, you know, there's certain things that I need to have private. And he laughed and then he put me under. But if you see a colonoscopy on YouTube, let me know. In verses 16 and 17, we have a picture of the invaders surrounding the city walls of Jerusalem. And so here, Jeremiah places himself in the city. And this is part of what I want you to understand. He places himself in the city and he envisions himself as the armies are coming from the north and they begin to lay siege to the city and they begin to break down the walls and they begin to take down the barricades and the judgment is taking place. My heart is beating wildly, Jeremiah's writing. He's basically talking about a panic attack. My heart moans. The verb describes animal sounds in the Hebrew language. It's like the growling of a bear or the roaring of a lion. Jeremiah uses the same word to describe the crashing of waves in chapter 5 verse 22. It frequently expresses emotion. My heart moans for Moab like a flute in chapter 48 verse 36. In other words, this is something that's happening that's creating a great deal of angst and anxiety. And so in verse 20, it says destruction upon destruction is cried for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. This is Judah's voice, by the way. In other words, what he's doing in the poem and in the prophecy is he's using the people of Judah to describe the moment when the judgment takes place. Destruction upon destruction. She sees her tents torn down. She sees the, the land pillaged. Unless Judah expresses a radical change of heart, the prophecy is given in what's called the predictive present. In other words, it's as if it has already happened. It's as if it's already going to happen. Imagine you're reading the New Testament and you're reading the Bible and you're reading the, the passages in the Bible that speak of heaven and hell. 
that speak of the eventual destruction of the planet Earth, that speak of the unwinding that's going to take place. If you read through the book of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25, or you read through the book of Revelation, and you begin to see the scenario that's painted in the Bible of how human history is unwinding and coming to a close. Here, curtains mean the tent hangings. And then in verse 21, it says, how long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? In other words, with the prophecy comes Jeremiah's question. It's the age old question. How much time do we have? How long? In, in other words, what Jeremiah is saying is, how long am I going to have to look at this predictive prophecy, knowing that the walls of Jerusalem are going to be torn down, knowing that the land is going to be destroyed, knowing that the temple is going to be destroyed? How long do I have to see this scenario being played over and over inside of my mind? This is interesting. Because it's the same question that's asked in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, this Statement is made in the middle of the tribulation where the Antichrist is on the scene and the people of God who turn to God are being ravaged and pillaged and murdered. They're being crucified and beheaded. And the people cry. How long? How long is this going to go on? How long until the evil is made right? How long, how long are we going to live under these kinds of conditions? And notice the change in viewpoint. The previous verse shows the last stages of the siege. Here the invasion is in progress, but this is a poem. And I want you to understand that Jeremiah is using Hebrew parallelism in a poetic fashion in order to communicate the emotion and the trauma and the human anguish. It's so hard to communicate. I was watching the History Channel last night and they had a, a recreation, if you will, of Gettysburg and Grant and Lee and they talked about the battles that were taking place at Gettysburg and, and at Antietam, where the most vicious and cruel and wicked and barbaric um, wars were fought, where 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 people die in a single day during the Civil War. So that you're walking across a field and you can't walk across without stumbling over a dead body. There's no place where there's carnage. There's no place where you don't see the dead or the dying. It was said during that, that, that movie that, that some of the uh, southern generals went to the top 
And Lee made mention of the fact that it was a very good thing that war was such a hideous thing. And the consequences of the judgment are beginning to weigh on Jeremiah's heart as he sees into the future of a group of people who lose everything because they refuse to listen to what God has to say. You don't know how many times I wish that I could just take you with me into a hospital. I want you to go with me. I want you to see them put the needle into the man's carotid artery because his liver is completely gone and all of his veins are collapsed because he repeatedly refused to listen to the warning to stop drinking, stop drinking, stop drinking. Your wife is going to leave you. Your children aren't going to respect you. It's eventually going to kill you. And then bring you with me. As you see the mother and the daughter sobbing as they watch their father, as they watch their husband die on the spot. I wish I could take you with me into the jail. I wish I could take you with me to the funeral. I wish I could take you with me into those circumstances of those people who have refused to repeatedly heed the warning. Most people want to know when judgment will fall. How long? How long do I have? How many mistakes do I have? How much grace is left? How many chances do I have left? How long? Few people ask me, how can I avoid the judgment altogether? Instead of saying, hey, how long do you think that we have? How, how much time do we have before our nation finally experiences judgment? How long does the world have before God finally says, guess what? I'm done with this place. Very few people ask me, what do I have to do to avoid the judgment? How can I turn my life around right now? And look what it says in verse 22. For my people are foolish. Look what it says. They have not known me. They are silly children. And they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil. But, do, but to do good they have no knowledge. The answer God gives may not be the answer that Jeremiah anticipated. How long do we have? Hey, guess what? All of this could be avoided if you'll just turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. How long do we have? I don't know. The people are pretty stupid. Here, God reminds Jeremiah about the role and responsibility of human beings in the relationship. God's people have refused to know him. The verse has only 15 Hebrew words of tragic poetry that carry an unbelievable cargo of theological and psychological insight. God speaks, for my people are foolish. He answers why the judgment has to take place. The main reason, they don't know me. Why does this have to happen? 
They don't know me. They don't want to know me. Why not? Because knowing me means turning from sin. And it means turning from selfishness. And it means turning from wickedness. And it means walking in love and walking in peace and walking in hope and walking in forgiveness. They don't know me. And read it for yourself. Read the opening verse again. For my people are foolish. There's a note of tenderness and anguish. The tenderness and the anguish is, how could they not know me? They're my people. How could you not know the Lord? Those of you who are raised in a Christian home, those of you who have had moms and dads model the reality of what it means to know and love God, how could you not know? How could you go to church and how could you go to Bible study and how could you go to Sunday school? How could you repeatedly go into these circumstances and yet turn your back on God? In private, Jeremiah is weeping. In public, he's bold. The Lord explains in part why the judgment is inevitable. The people are foolish. Here, foolish doesn't mean stupid in the sense of not knowing something or doing bad in school. Here, it means the inability to make a moral judgment based on truth instead of error. Based on righteousness instead of unrighteousness. The people are foolish. They're unable to make moral judgments. In this sense, it's like the Lord is in fact saying, how could you not know that this is wrong? How could you not know that idolatry is wrong? How could you not know that abandoning the Lord is wrong? How can you, how can you repeatedly hear the promises of God and the prophecies of God and pretend like they're not real. They're stupid. They lack understanding. In chapter 2, verse 8, by the way, the word translated foolish speaks of the pursuits of not knowing God, of pursuing things that bring no profit. It's a word that can also mean folly in the sense of why would you repeatedly do something that is going to have zero value for you? The biblical understanding of folly and fool goes way beyond how we use it in our language and culture. They have not known me speaks of a personal, intimate relationship. It means the love of a man and a woman. It's, it's the kind of love that you experience, that you discover, that you give attention to. And so here it means they've paid no attention to me. Imagine you're in a circumstance where the person just simply walks by you and pretends that you don't exist. You go into your home. You pretend like your husband doesn't exist. You don't. You pretend like your wife doesn't exist. You pretend like your parents don't exist. You pretend like the children don't exist. You go into the school and the teacher pretends like the students don't exist. The students pretend like the teacher doesn't exist. What's going to eventually happen? Can you have a home? Can you have some sort of understanding based on that? To, to Jeremiah, 
Knowing God means familiarity with him. It means knowing his character. It means knowing his attributes. It means understanding his will. It means a willingness to do what he wants to have done. But they're wise to do evil. And they're reluctant to do good. Knowing God isn't some religious ritualistic exercise. It's not going to church. It's not opening up your Bible necessarily. It's not a religious activity. It isn't just simply shooting up a prayer or even singing a song. Knowing God is living a life desperately wanting to understand his character and then a willingness to do his will. That's why... I do what I do for you. It's to make sure that you understand what the Bible is saying. Warren Wiersbe writes, if they had been as skillful in holy living as they were in sinning, God would have blessed them instead of judging them. Have you ever met someone who devoted his life to begging and manipulating? And if he took those considerable talents and used them to get a real job, he would be wealthy. That's what he's talking about. How can you be so good at lying and deceiving and manipulating instead of what we were singing? Brokenness. Brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. Why? Because there, there's residuals inside of us. There's selfishness and wickedness. Instead of wanting what God wants, we want what we want. Let me ask you a question. Are you skilled at holy living? Is it something that has interested you? You know, in order to play guitar, you have to really work at it. If you want to skillfully sing, guess what? It's going to require dedication and determination. So many people have said to me, I wish I knew the Bible like you know the Bible. And, I'm say, and I say, are you willing to do what I did? Are you willing to do what I did? Are you willing to give up this and this and this? Are you willing to read it? Are you willing to study it? Are you willing to love it? Are you willing to obey it? What are you willing to do? The scriptures, by the way, speak of seven callings or divine callings from God. Number one, there's the call to salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 29, and 30. It speaks of this call that comes from God where the Lord basically says, well, I'm going to turn there just for fun, just, just so you can hear the call yourself. In Romans 8, 28, it says... And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, these he justified, those he justified, he's willing to, to glorify. There's a calling. The calling is... To come out of a dark place into a light place. A dead place to a living place. I remember when I first heard that call. Do you? 
Do you remember the voice inside of your heart and the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Saying you can experience forgiveness and hope. Love and redemption. It's really easy. You heard the knock. You heard the call on the door of your heart. And you opened up the door. And you invited Christ in. There's the call to sanctification in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and 1 Thessalonians 5. It's the call to begin to walk a life of, of obedience and and, and redemption. Then there's the call to service in John 15, 16. Then there's the call to separation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 14, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, where, where all of a sudden the call comes and, you, and, and you, you understand something, that the way that you used to walk is, is not the way that you need walk anymore. There's the call to sonship in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. For those... Uh, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. It's a call to a real relationship. And there's the, the call to subjugation in Romans 13 to the authorities. There's the call to suffering in John chapter 16, verse 33 and Acts chapter 14, verse 22. In other words, there's this progression of calls that begin to take place and you hear the voice and the direction that you were going all of a sudden radically and fundamentally changes. Are you skilled in holy living? Or are you only good at being bad? I literally remember this was the big reason why I refused to be a Christian. People would talk to me about Jesus, and they would talk to me about the Bible, and they would talk to me about stuff. And I'd say, okay, what do you do for fun? Go to church? Oh, hold me down! Oh, wow, you go to church? What else do you do for fun? Read my Bible? Oh, I, I could hardly stand it. It sounds like so much fun. Not! What else do you do for fun? Well, we have fellowship. Oh, I don't I don't I don't know if I could take that much fun. But you know what? Someone had the wherewithal to say, How much fun is it? To keep hugging that toilet seat. How much fun is it to live in darkness? How much fun is it to go to bed at night wondering that if you die, you're going to go to hell? How much fun is it to live in emptiness and darkness and wickedness and guilt? How much fun is it to live a life of estrangement and manipulation, knowing that every self-serving, lying, wicked thing that you do creates a mechanism where you're hurting other people and that God's going to hold you accountable for it. How many hurt people, how many destroyed lives, how many, how many people do you have to hurt before you'll finally wake up and say, you know what, this is not worth it. It's not worth it to my wife. It's not worth it to my husband. It's not, it's not worth it to my family. And so Jeremiah sees in the spirit 
the judgment that's coming in verse 23. He says, I beheld the earth and indeed it was without form and void in the heavens. They had no light. Does that sound familiar to you? It should because it's from Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. There was no order. There was just simply chaos. Do you understand what he's saying? The destruction that Babylon has on the land reminds Jeremiah of an incredible devastation. When I was in New Orleans after the hurricane, it looked like a bomb went off. There was the pungent odor of filth and death. The houses were destroyed and flooded. It was absolutely chaotic, ruin and devastation. When I was at Ground Zero in 2001, there was 15 acres where there were two-story buildings and 3,000 people died in an instant. And it smelled like urine and death. And my very first thought was, how could something so valuable become so worthless so quickly? The catastrophe and the devastation that the Babylonians ravages the the place. There's utter chaos. There's ruin. There's devastation. All you have to do is look at the shores of Japan. All you have to do is look at the tornado that went through Joplin, Missouri. All you have to do is look at the overflowing banks of the Mississippi River. Look at a place where they lose everything. And then ask yourself this question. What, it would, be, what would it be like if I lost everything? My home is gone. My family is gone. Everything is gone. It is gone. The life that I used to have, it is gone. The job that I used to have is gone. The future that I thought I had, it is now gone. Here's the point that Jeremiah is making. The people's rebellion. The people's resistance. The people's rejection of God will bring ruin to themselves and ruin to the land. There's a picture of that in the New Testament and what it's going to be like. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from the heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The cosmic changes that Matthew talks about in verse 29 precede the coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24 verse 27 describes the coming of Jesus as sudden, like a bolt of lightning. The events that precede Christ's coming include the gathering of the nations at Armageddon in Revelation 16. The eagles flying around rotting carcasses as they see the raw carnage that emerges from the battle. We're not told what the sign of the Son of Man in heaven is. But whatever it is, it's recognizable. 
The New Testament seems to indicate when the time of the end comes, the people will realize it. They'll realize it. They'll go. You mean the Bible was true? And everything that the Bible said is true. The prophecies were true. The promises were true. The judgment. You mean it's true? And in verse 24, look what it says. I beheld. And by the way, you're going to see that expression over and over again. I beheld or I looked. Remember, Jeremiah is speaking. I beheld. I looked. I fixed my gaze. I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled and all the hills moved back and forth. Jeremiah sees judgment in terms of an earthquake. By the way, mountains in the Bible often represent places of strength and stability. When your world is falling apart, you look for the thing that's the biggest and the hardest and the, the most concrete. But what, what happens when what has existed for thousands of years begins to move and begins to shake? When the mountains themselves begin to move. Again, it's a picture of things that are, are supposed to provide strength and stability. And now all of a sudden that strength and stability is under attack. But they're moving. Why? I want you to think about this. Is this a literal earthquake? Maybe. But whatever else it means, it means that everything that used to be strong and everything that used to be stable will not withstand the coming judgment. That's what he's saying. Is there a place where I can run? Is there a place where I can hide? Is there somewhere where I can go to escape the judgment? In verse 25, look what it says. I beheld again. I looked and indeed there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had fled. The human population, as soon as they see the armies gathering and they begin to invade the land, the people run for their lives. By the way, the human beings leave the scene. Birds are usually everywhere. They leave the scene. They can normally thrive in almost any severe circumstance. But imagine a world where it is so devastated that even the birds can't survive. That's what it's talking about. He says it again in verse 26. I beheld. And indeed, the fruitful land was a wilderness and its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. The Bible often calls the Holy Land. The fruitful land. The holy land is the land of promise. The holy land is that land which was given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And here in Judah, it's the fruitful land. But God's wrath and judgment is often tempered with mercy. So he says, I beheld, I'm looking, I'm looking. And indeed, the fruitful land is a wilderness. How does a fruitful land become a wilderness? It's when everything is taken away and everything is destroyed. 
God places you in a position of fruitfulness. A fruitful home, a fruitful job, a fruitful business. You're working. You live in a land. You live in a land that is arguably one of the most beautiful in the world. You live in a place that's majestic. You live in a place of opportunity. You live in a place of fruitfulness. But then it's gone. The cities are broken down. At the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. What happened? The people had presumed on God's patience. They presumed on his mercy. They presumed on his long suffering. They woke up when Jeremiah was preaching day after day. They woke up the next day saying the judgment hasn't come. I still have time. The judgment hasn't come. I still have time. Nothing really bad has happened. It's not like I've gone to jail. It isn't like anything bad has happened. People are, by and large, fine with God's love. But then they read this passage about his fierce anger. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul talks about it. He says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It was Paul's way of saying. Remember what we talked about on Sunday for those of you who were who were here on Sunday. Faith produces more faith. And hardness produces more hardness. Brokenness. Digs a well. To faith. But hardness. Reinforces pride. The people of Judah failed to see. What we often see. That the patience and the mercy of God is supposed to bring us to a place of heartfelt repentance. Oh, you've got another day. Oh, you've got one more day. Because grace precedes judgment, you have one more day. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the verse immediately before that says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long suffering, not knowing it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? God's being good, I know. He's being good. He's, he's being good to you. He's being good and gracious. What happens to the person? What happens to the person who rejects God's mercy, who rejects his goodness, who rejects his forbearance, who rejects his long suffering? What happens to the person who says, grace, I don't need it. Forgiveness, I don't need it. Mercy, I don't need it. Love, I don't want it. Heaven, forget it. You know what happens to him? They're inviting judgment, aren't they? You don't want grace? What do you want? Well, I, I just know I don't want grace. But guess what? When you reject grace, 
you extend an invitation to judgment. I don't want to know Jesus. I don't want to love Jesus. And I don't want to have Jesus as my Savior. Well, what do you want? I want to be on my own. Really? Really? You want to be on your own? You want to stand before God on your own? That's an invitation to judgment. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, it says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In the new covenant, Jesus becomes the object of God's wrath and therefore is our deliverer from wrath. That's the whole point of the message of the New Testament. There's the wrath of God and the anger of God and the judgment of God. And he visits it on the person of Jesus. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something from the opening of our message. You can tell how severe a problem is in direct proportion to what it takes to solve that problem. How big of a problem is sin? How big of a problem is your sin? Watch Jesus. Watch Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem. Watch Jesus as he's arrested. Watch Jesus as he's tried. Watch Jesus as he's tortured. Watch Jesus as he's beaten and spat upon. Watch Jesus as he's strapped to a piece of wood. Watch Jesus as they take Roman nails and they put them in the wood. Watch Jesus as they suspend him between heaven and earth. And then watch him die in the most slow and painful process that's been imagined by wicked human beings. And now you begin to understand a little bit, just a tiny bit, of how severe the problem is. In verse 27 it says, For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end. The punishment is severe. The judgment is overwhelming. Because Judah has a problem with idolatry. And wickedness. And rebellion. And in order to deal with the problem of rebellion and wickedness, he's going to wipe everything out. And he's going to transport them to Babylon. But look what else it says in verse 27. Yet I will not make a full end. You know what that means? A remnant will survive. This hope was expressed by other prophets. A remnant will survive. Do you understand that Jeremiah's scroll was unrolled in Babylon by Daniel? And he read chapter 1, and he read chapter 2, and he read chapter 3, and he read chapter 4, and he read the exact same verse that you're reading in verse 27. Daniel the prophet unrolls the scroll and reads this statement, Yet I will not make a full end. You know what that means? Hope. That's what it means. A remnant will survive. Whether and, and see, here's part of the takeaway that I need you to take right from the start. God's word is certain. 
whether it's a word of promise or whether it's a word of blessing. Or whether it's a word of judgment. Yet I will not make a full end. God will restore the people to the land and to Jerusalem. I will not make an end. In other words, there's still something left to do. A wall is going to be rebuilt. A temple is going to be rebuilt. The Jews are going to return to the land. A Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. A a Messiah is going to be raised in Nazareth. I will not make an end. I'm holding out hope and, and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation because I have unfinished business with you. Do you feel a hot hand of judgment? Read it again. Yet I will not make a full end. I have unfinished business with you. And look what it says in verse 28. For this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken. I have purpose and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. The moment that God says, guess what? Grace precedes judgment. But once the judgment comes, it will come. Because I've spoken, I have purposed and will not relent. Verse 29, the whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. They shall go into the thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken and not a man shall dwell in it. Do you understand what you're reading? The citizens of Judah run for their lives. As they see the army approaching, they go into the woods, they go into the caves. They flee from the horsemen and the bowmen. The the Babylonians were skilled archers. They could pick you off easily at a hundred feet. So they're going to make a run for it. In verse 30. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with the ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. You understand what you're reading? Judah makes herself beautiful. Do you remember the commercial growing up? Some of you are so young, so you don't remember these commercials. But there was a commercial that went something like, Maybelline has beautiful eyes. Here, Judah is making herself up for her lovers. Why? The surrounding nations are her lovers. These are the political alliance and the cries for help that she's going to extend to her neighbors. Jeremiah describes the surrounding nations like lovers. So Judah makes herself beautiful. In the hopes that the neighbors will be attracted to her. And so that they'll listen to her cries for help. This is the damsel in distress. She makes herself beautiful. But the Lord says like a prostitute. Because guess what? The neighbors have no intention of doing anything other than destroying her. Judah trusted political alliances instead of trusting the Lord. But the prostitutes would become like women who are impregnated by their customers who are giving birth to an unwanted and an unwelcome child. And that's the disgusting vision that Jeremiah 
communicates. Read it for yourself in verse 31. For I've heard the voice as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hands saying, woe is me now for my soul is weary because of murderers. You may not have understood it when you first read it. The Babylonians would rape and they would pillage and they would destroy the land. But equally great and equally devastating are the people's stubborn refusal to repent and to ask for God's help. And so the picture Jeremiah paints is a woman who's raped by an invading army. She's impregnated by the enemy and then she miscarries the child. And she watches the child die right in front of her. The child comes out bloody and dead. That's what that means. For I have heard the voice as of a woman in labor. The anguish as of her who brings forth her first child. The voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hands saying that woe is me for my soul is weary because of murderers. Who are the murderers? Her lovers. Who she cried to for help. Who wind up abusing, manipulating, impregnating, and then killing her child. This is hard. Because the picture of judgment and the consequences of judgment are so enormous. The prophet Zephaniah called Judgment Day the day of the Lord. The day that God will shake what can be shaken so that what remains remains forever. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27, it says, Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain every once in a while. God will shake you up. He's willing to take away things that won't last in order to give you what will last. Forgiveness will last forever. Grace and mercy will last forever. The love of God and heaven will last forever. Will believers have to face Jesus? Will there be a time of examination and explanation for us? In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, it says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will confess to God then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. You mean Christians? Yeah. 
you don't have to give an account about about whether or not you're going to go to heaven. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That judgment has already taken place. So what will we be judged on? Well, how we treat each other. How we exercise authority over others in our God, given duties as husbands and wives and pastors and ministry leaders. Time doesn't permit me to list everything, but I suspect we're going to be evaluated on how we used our God-given talent, how we used our abilities, how we spent our money, how we spent our time, whether or not we suffered for Jesus, how we ran the race, if we walked in the spirit rather than in the flesh, how many people came to Christ, how many people did we encourage, how many people did we win, how did we resist temptation, how in love and on fire for Jesus were we, did we look for his coming and his appearing, were we faithful? So what's our task? Hey, you know what? Our task is really easy. We're to love God. We're to glorify God. We're to display God's grace and evangelize the world. We're to baptize believers and instruct them and edify believers. We're to discipline believers, provide fellowship for one another. The Bible says that we're to care for each other. The Bible says that we're to do this to provoke Israel to jealousy. In what sense? In the sense that, wait a minute. How come your life is a life of hope and a life of grace and a life of forgiveness and a life of redemption and a a life of hope? Well, your life could be a life of grace and mercy and redemption and a life of hope as well. How could all that happen? Repent of your sin and your unbelief and trust Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. We're to promote what is good. And we're to resist what is evil. That's what we're supposed to do. We promote what is good and we resist what is evil. But think about that for just a moment. If we promote what is evil and we resist what is good, doesn't that sound like an invitation to judgment? So why would we do that? Remember what I've said to you. Grace precedes judgment. It's hard for you maybe to understand, but each of these verses that Jeremiah speaks of is to bring about hope and and to break down the barriers that are creating resistance and rebellion inside of the human heart so that things don't have to go badly. So things can go well. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have the guys come up. But remember what communion is. Communion is our celebration of the fact that Jesus became the object of God's anger and wrath. So that he wouldn't have to display his anger and his wrath towards you. That Jesus died. That Jesus experienced the satisfying punishment so that you wouldn't have to be punished. 
That's why we do what we do. That's why we're having this communion service. It is, in fact, to celebrate the reality that the judgment that we deserve is no longer going to fall on us, but it's fallen on Jesus so that we are now free, free, free to live our lives in peace with God and in peace with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray for the person who's contemplating a life of continued resistance and rebellion. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart and that you would remind them it doesn't have to be this way. That there is forgiveness and love that's available for you. If you'll just simply say, Lord, I'm not happy with my wickedness and my rebellion and my resisting. Lord, I don't want to rebel against you anymore and I don't want to resist you anymore. I want to know you and love you and honor you and serve you. I understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. And that because he's alive, he can change me from the inside out. That I don't have to worry about changing myself. That I don't have to be concerned about being good enough. But that Jesus has already been good enough. And that you're absolutely and positively satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. And so I invite you to come into my life and change my heart and be my Savior. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer and if you meant it, you can have communion with us. Because we're here to celebrate the fact that, guess what? Judgment has been averted. Grace has come. Remember what I said to you. It's going to be hard doing 51 chapters of judgment. But I'm going to try and do what Jeremiah did. Make it interesting for you. Here's what I want you to do. Hold the elements of communion so we all have a chance to partake together.